Amen. What's up, guys? How we doing? How was your fourth? One person had a fantastic fourth of July. All right. That's great. I assume most of you, like, shot off some fireworks. Maybe some of you are responsible for the fireworks that ended up in my yard. I don't know. Still trying to trace that down. We'll figure it out. Um, but it's July. We've got a new series already, um, and I'm pumped for this series, Asking for a Friend. We're going to be tackling some tough questions throughout the rest of July. Um, and so maybe you've actually come tonight because of this series, which is super cool. I'm glad you're here. I want to meet you afterwards. But this is going to be a series that um, I hope, even if, if you are a believer and you, you think you maybe have some answers to some of these questions, just kind of continues to equip you and prepare you um, to actually just be able to talk about your faith. So there's, there's this verse real quick that we're going to look at before we get started in 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, you can throw it up on the screen. But it, he's, he's actually calling us to be ready. He says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So Peter's saying, like, we actually, we believers need to, to make sure that we're prepared, that we're ready to be able to talk about our hope in Jesus. But the thing is, is that we're not just, like, to be people that are ready to be able to do this and kind of just, like, beat people up with truth or have answers and, and not use them in a winsome, like, compassionate way, but to be people like Jesus, to use them in, in ways that are gentle and respectful and kind. So that's my hope for you is that this series, not just tonight, but this whole series, Asking for a Friend, kind of helps you along in, in growing and being ready to make a defense for your faith. Because if, if I'm, like, probably, like, just asking you, hey, are you... Are you ready to defend everything you believe about Christianity if you are a Christian? I'm, I'm guessing the answer would probably be no, and that's okay. Like, the same is like, honestly true for me on, on some really tough issues, and, and yet I'm up here. And there's still some, there, there's growth and, and just ways for me to still kind of get ready to be able to talk about what I believe. And so that's kind of the hope for this series is, is that we would just grow in basically being able to articulate what we believe, why we believe it. And if, if you're here tonight skeptical that, that this would actually just be the beginning of you asking questions about Jesus, about Christianity. So when it comes to like tough questions, there's, there's plenty of like good questions that we could start with, right? But even, even really important questions like what does a person need to do to be saved? Or like how do you get to heaven? All of those questions, if you have answers for those questions, Ultimately, you're going to be met with another question that's underneath all of that, and that's, where did you get that answer? Where did you, where did you base your answer off of? Like, what, what did you base your answer off of? Where does that answer come from? So the, the most important question, you might say, is actually, like, what do you believe about the Bible? How can you trust the Bible? Like, why do you trust the Bible? And when it comes to the Bible, this is... This is probably one of these things that, if you're a believer, has been kind of like maybe a little bit of a shaky thing to feel like you have to talk about or defend. Like maybe something that you don't feel you have a lot of ground to stand on. Maybe going into a kind of debate or whatever with a close friend or a family member about the Bible isn't the most comfortable thing. You'd rather talk about some other things. You might have heard people kind of say things like, 
I don't know if I can trust the Bible because, like, isn't there, like, all sorts of errors in it? And you feel like you don't really have an answer for that. Like, there, there's some good things in the Bible. You might even, if you're a Christian, believe, like, yeah, there's some good things in the Bible. But there's also some things that I'd rather, like, kind of gloss over. And you might be asking, like, if you're the skeptic, how, how can Christians be so set in their minds that the Bible is, like, the source of truth? That's the divine revelation. How, like, how can Christians have the audacity to claim that they're the ones that have heard from God and not also some other religion, some other holy books that have also been written? Like, why, why trust the Bible and not some of these other books as well? Like, couldn't there be, couldn't there be some wisdom in listening to and, and reading and perhaps even believing what other people have written from other faiths about God? Like, would that lead to kind of a, a more well-rounded view of God if we did that? If you're a Christian, it's these kinds of questions, right, that get just that knot going in your stomach a little bit, if you're fair. And you're kind of like not sure if you have an answer to all of those things. And if all you have to say to that is like, I trust the Bible because that's how I was raised. That's not that compelling, is it? Like, that's fair. It's not that compelling to just say, that's how I was raised. Maybe you've, maybe you've taken a religious studies class or some sort of religion class already in college, and you've actually run into a professor or somebody in the class kind of giving you, giving you a pretty like, hard time pressing you on like, why you believe what you believe about the Bible. And again, if, you are, if you're someone who maybe has issues with the Bible, or you're someone who's been following Jesus for a long time, you, you have your opinions about the Bible, but answering specific questions, that, that starts to get a little bit uncomfortable. So my job tonight is to tell you why I think you can trust the Bible, why, why Salt Company fully trusts the Bible and submits to the Bible as the source of divine revelation, God displaying himself, who he is and his character. The, the complete revelation that we believe we have in the Bible, why that is. That's my job tonight. So I first want to actually just talk for a minute about what the Bible is. I think that's going to be helpful to kind of just get that out of the way. What is the Bible? And the first thing that's kind of necessary to say is the Bible is actually not just one book, but 66 books. And you're probably like, I know that. Okay. But it's 66 books. Two testaments, old and new. Still, you're like, you're tracking. I know that probably. 40 different authors. It's written by over 40 different authors in three different languages. Now, this is, this is in, starting to get a little interesting, right? Because now we have some people that are, are from a, a wide variety of backgrounds, writing from different periods of time, and yet somehow... All of these books, all of these 66 books fit together in this masterful way. That they all fit into this one kind of bigger story, this meta-narrative of all the 66 books. The Bible, you could say, is the redemptive plan of God. Him, him actually moving towards his creation that's rebelled against him. And moving towards it in such a way to make things right again. To bring back his creation into peace into like perfection, into harmony. And the Bible actually makes sense of our world. I don't think I need to do too much work like convincing you that there's a lot of pain and suffering, brokenness in our world. Like you don't have to look too far one way or the other to figure that out. 
but the Bible actually has answers. It, it actually like, gives us the reasons for why that exists. It has answers to the origins of the very pain and suffering that we experience. And so, more than just the Bible being written from 40 different authors over the course of like 2,000 years and being written on three different continents, we have, to, we have to come to realize these authors, these are people who are from a wide variety of like upbringings and backgrounds, from different socioeconomic classes and from different, literally just like completely different lives, from, from kings to fishermen, from people with power and notoriety and wealth, and from people that literally had none of it. And so, with all of this going on, still, somehow, the 66 books in the Bible, written by 40-plus authors, tell one story. And so, this is kind of how one pastor-author puts kind of his defense of the Bible in this statement. We're going to come back to this a little bit and kind of go different routes off of it. But he says this, The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, and they report supernatural events supernatural events that took place in the fulfillment of specific prophecies that claim that their origins are divine rather than human in nature. I'm going to say it again. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in the fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine. The authors, they claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Okay. So the Bible, being made up of all of these different authors, still somehow tell this one story. And what I want to do for a minute here is actually just focus on the Old Testament. We're not going to spend a ton of time talking about the Old Testament. We're going to focus more of our, more of our time on the New Testament. But it's important to start with the Old Testament, I think. The Old Testament was written between the years 1400 and 430 BC. I promise we're not going to do a ton of history. I'm not a huge history buff, so don't, don't worry. 1400 and 430 BC. And the thing is, is that Christians from like the beginning have believed in the authority and inspiration of the Old Testament. We believe in the Old Testament that Jesus and the apostles believed in, you could say. Like, we, we have always been able to say, these books are the books that have always been, since before the, this way, before the, before the Christ came and before he died on the cross and rose again to new life, this was the start of the revelation of God. And these 39 books, the Old Testament, were, like, closed. We're going to get, kind of, in a, little, in a little while as we talk more, about the New Testament, talking about the collection of these two sets of books, the Old and New Testament. But the Old Testament was actually already written, and the books, these 39 books, were determined. And they were closed. Like, you couldn't add to it way before Jesus came. And we see in the life of Jesus that he actually made a big deal about these 39 Old Testament books. He had reverence for them. He quoted them. He, he actually showed that this, this was the authority. This was serious. And actually, if you were to go to a Jewish, Jewish synagogue, you would find 
the exact 39 books that you have in your Bible, or you could have in your Bible if you want a Bible later. I could give you a Bible. Or you could get a Bible on your phone. Maybe some of you have your Bible app on. Um, but these are the exact same books. There, there hasn't been any major disagreement about like, which books should be in the Old Testament. You would just find in the synagogue that they'd probably be in a little bit different grouping and order, but they would be the same books. They're the same books that Jesus and the apostles believed in. They're the same books that we see quoted time and time again in the New Testament. And so when it comes to the New Testament, it's important to realize that the, the authors, their scripture that they memorized and knew prior to writing the New Testament was the Old Testament. And the authors themselves, the New Testament authors, they seem to be aware of the fact that they were writing what was the next canon or the next kind of collection of books, the New Testament. They were aware of it, that they, they had supernatural power, the, the words themselves that they were writing. So in, in 2 Timothy, excuse me, in 2 Timothy verse 3.16, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Like, God has actually spoken. He has breathed out his words, and Paul is writing them. The Bible teaches us that there is one true God. There's one true God that's always existed eternally in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's the third person of the Trinity that actually inspired the very words of the Bible. So in, in, in 2 Peter 1, 21... Throw this up on the screen as well, real quick. Second Peter 1, 21. This is what Peter says. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as they were carried along by God. And more than this, what the Bible does is it signals how we should interpret it, how we should read it, how we should understand it. And this is important because there are many different kind of literary genres in the Bible. Like, there are 66 books, and there's tons of different genres. There's, there's prophecy, um, there's letters to churches, there's history, there's poetry, there's, there's songs, and even some things that, like, we don't exactly know how to interpret it best until we spend some serious time looking at it. But there's other books in the Bible that actually have a very clear kind of just like show you the cards this is what I'm writing and therefore we need to know like how to interpret it because the authors are telling us like this is how this is how I want you to interpret what I'm writing so for instance in Luke the beginning of Luke if you've got a Bible you can turn there we're going to stop there first the beginning of Luke chapter 1 this is this is one of the gospels when I say gospels I'm talking about the accounts of Jesus life so the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are these kind of descriptions of Jesus' life. There are, these, there are these gospels written by these four different guys. And this is how Luke begins his gospel. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. He's talking about what Jesus has done. He says, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So he's telling his audience. His audience is firstly his 
buddy, Theophilus. He's like, I want you to have certainty concerning the things that you've heard and been taught about Jesus. This is, this is my intent for writing this gospel. And if you're kind of aware of maybe some questions that pop up around the gospels, you probably have heard the one that's kind of like, well, there's four gospels, and they don't include like all of the same things. And they, they kind of leave things out in this one, and this one doesn't start like this one did. But the thing is, is that we have to keep in mind these are four different men writing to four different audiences. And the point of writing their Gospels is not exactly the same thing. So like I said, the Bible signals what it is and how it's to be interpreted. And that's true for the four Gospels. And so Luke starts his Gospel by saying, this is what I'm up to. Like, this is my audience. And Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, that was written to a, a like, primarily Jewish audience. Mark wrote to a Gentile audience. He, he kind of like leaves out the stuff that he doesn't think pertains and would be that important for, for a Gentile to know. John, his purpose is actually to kind of just put Jesus on display, to, to evangelize, you could say. This is what John says in, in John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31. He puts it this way. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So he's like, I, I know there's other stuff. I didn't even include it all. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's like, this is my thesis for my whole gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what John wants for you. Like he wants you to have life knowing Jesus. There's different literature I mentioned. Paul, when he's writing to his, like, his kind of disciple, his, his dude that's out there planning churches, Timothy, he actually starts his letter by saying like, his name. We don't do that. We put our name at the bottom of like, the email and the letter. We like, sign it. But he starts and he says, Paul. And he says, I'm writing to you, Timothy, like my true child. There's letters that start like that. So we see clearly this is Paul's letter to a dude. So we should interpret it as someone else's mail, not something that's written directly to us. But this question kind of keeps coming back around and again. Like, what about, what about just the differences in all of these Gospels? But the thing is, is that we have overwhelming evidence that these four Gospels are historically reliable. And they account for the miracles that Jesus did. And more than that, they clearly, all four of them, present that he lived a sinless life, went to be hung on a cross, died a criminal's death, was put in a tomb, and was raised again on the third day. That is clear on all four of them. We're going to talk some more in a little bit about the, the kind of evidence we have for the reliability of, of not just the Gospels, but of all the Scripture. Um, but if, if you're a Christian and you accept Jesus, like if you say, like, that's that, that thesis that John has of having life in his name by believing, like, that's me. I believed in Jesus. I have life in his name. It makes no sense for you to say that's you and not hold to a view of, of the Old Testament that Jesus would have held to. If you say you follow Jesus, but you actually want to, like, cut out the Old Testament or not have the authority that the, that the Scripture had in his life and how he taught, it really makes no sense for you to, like, kind of do that. 
Another common thing you run into, if you talk about your faith enough, if you share the gospel enough, eventually run into people when it comes to the Bible is, what about all the translations? Like, what about, what about all these different translations? Like, hasn't stuff just gotten lost in all of the translation that's been done? Like, it wasn't translated to English right away, certainly. But here's the thing. I think what's kind of assumed in that argument often is that the Bible was translated kind of by means of like telephone. You guys know the game telephone, where you start, pass something along to someone else, who passes something along to someone else, and again and again and again, and it eventually gets to you, and it's like not even close to the same thing. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, not a few of you know what I'm talking about. I used to play that at recess when it would rain. I couldn't go outside and play kickball. Um, anyways, that happened. That did not happen like that. It did not happen like that at all. What happened is actually through all of the good translation work that's been done, we have been able to go back to the original manuscripts that we have. Like we, we didn't just kind of go from translating to one language to the next, to the next, to the next, and risk losing the kind of rich meaning of words because we know that sometimes in translating things it doesn't go perfectly, but that's not what's happened. So it's not like telephone. All good translations have come directly from manuscripts. And you actually could learn Greek and Hebrew. The Bible is written in primarily Greek and Hebrew. And you could do some of this work of continuing to translate the Bible, make revisions, make new translations. Or you could just check the translation that you like to use the most. And oftentimes I think the people making these arguments are the people that have honestly like hardly read their Bible at all or never even wanted to read their Bible. But we live in a day and age where we have the Bible at our fingertips, on our smartphones. And in fact, if you think about it, if you read the Gospels, Jesus commands us to go and proclaim the Gospel to all people groups, which necessitates the Bible being translated into different languages. So Jesus knew that this was going to happen. This was what was going to like, take place. The Bible was going to be translated. But, oh, you say, what about the original manuscripts? Don't we not have them? Like, don't, do we not have the original manuscripts? How, could, how can I trust the Bible? Because isn't there just no original manuscripts? And you could say, yeah, you're right. We don't have the original manuscripts. And that's because of the material that the Bible, the New Testament, was written on. Papyrus. It was literally just reeds that were smashed together. And we could not preserve them perfectly. Like, they didn't hold up. But what is really compelling is that we have manuscripts that date back within 30 or so years of the original New Testament manuscripts being written. Which, if that just sounds like not that impressive to you, it's probably because you don't spend a lot of time studying ancient literature and how it was preserved and all that. I doubt you do that in your free time. But this is actually really amazing. Um, no other ancient writing comes close to the New Testament in terms of the amount of manuscripts we have, but also the date range in which we have like manuscripts that were close to the actual writing of the New Testament. So the second place, kind of, if you will, ancient writing is Homer's Iliad. And we've got like around a thousand, probably just under a thousand manuscripts of Homer's Iliad. But also, when it comes to Homer's Iliad, there's a thousand years between when 
He actually wrote it and the earliest manuscript that we have. Whereas when it comes to the New Testament, there's about 30 years. So the New Testament, I think I said this already, was written between like 90, 40 and 90 AD. And we have manuscripts that some would say are even shown to be 10, 15 years removed from the last kind of year that we know that the New Testament was written. And so this is just a really compelling, strong fact for the New Testament being reliable because no one actually goes around on like, you know, really uh, elite academic campuses and goes to the English department and goes like, I don't know if we can trust what is in Homer's Iliad or I don't know if we can trust like, you know, this other ancient literature. I'm not really into ancient literature, if you can tell, but there's all these books, right, that no one questions when it comes to like kind of textual criticism and, and just everything that's going on in academia. No one stands around and goes like, I doubt that Caesar wrote this. I doubt that this is really what Homer's Iliad says. But when it comes to the Bible, there's this kind of attack on the reliability of the Bible that makes no sense because it is first place by far. I came across this thing that was actually showing us that if you were to stack all of the manuscripts that we have of the Bible, it would be two and a half miles high. Two and a half miles high. And like the next thing is like four feet. It's pretty insane. That is amazing to me. There's overwhelming evidence to believe in just the historical reliability of the Bible. These manuscripts line up. Like we continue to go back to them and see that they, they line up. They make Jesus out to be the same person they're very, very consistent. And there have been some funny errors when it comes to Bible translation. Take place during the translation and transmission. But the, the work of just literally writing in the original language from the manuscript, from the original to another manuscript, a copy, was done extremely carefully to where you would literally find close to no errors. And one of the things that's important is to even just mention the errors that are there they're small and no, like they have nothing to do with any text that actually has anything like tied to it when it comes to a major Christian doctrine or belief. But you might say, how can we be sure we have the right books? Like what if, what if there were other books that were missing or what if there were books that the church just left out? Like we've, we've kind of already mentioned this word can and this has to do with the collection of books, the books that we have in our Bible. And so what we're talking about is kind of this issue of like, is the canon complete? Do we have all the books that we should have? There's a, a pastor, or sorry, there's a, there's a theologian, a professor named Dr. Robert Plummer, who, if you're interested in this stuff, I would say like, you should read him, you should listen to him, you should find his stuff. But he suggests kind of when it comes to this topic, when it comes to this question of, can we be sure we have the right books? Can we be sure of even just the books that we do have, that they're all authentic he suggests asking the question, is the Bible an authorized collection of writings or is it a collection of authoritative writings? It almost sounds like the same thing, so I'm going to say it again. Is the Bible an, author an authorized collection of writings or a collection of authoritative writings? So these are two similar sounding things, but they're very, very different. The first is, is kind of more like 
is there this institution, is the, the, the church saying these books, we're going to instill authority into them. There's this external kind of institution, this external reality saying these books, these are the authoritative books. We authorize them. Or is it that the Bible is, an, is a collection of authoritative writings that have an inherent authority, that claim to be from God? You see, for this whole entire time, the church has believed in the inspiration of the scriptures, that the Holy Spirit spoke through men, and that these are a collection of authoritative writings, the second, meaning that it doesn't actually just kind of sit there until someone says, yes, okay, the Bible does have authority. We're saying as we read the Bible, they clearly, the authors clearly perceived that they were writing and they were hearing God speak through them. Their writings were authoritative just inherently. And this is what Christians have believed. So the early church like, didn't have a council to pick the books that they wanted to include in the Bible, but rather to affirm the books that were already just widely regarded as Scripture, as authoritative writing. And one of the big criteria for this, it's important to kind of hit on this quick, is, is just kind of, was, was this book apostolic? Meaning, like, was this from an apostle? Someone who witnessed the risen Jesus, someone who we could actually say is legit. Like, was this book written by Paul? Was it written by Peter? Or was it written by someone that was close to them, that actually got their information from them? Because if it wasn't, there's not a chance that we could include it. And so, what's interesting is that there was even, like, books that were completely accurate theologically, but when when you ask the question of this book, of this gospel, is this apostolic? And it was no. When you looked at it and it was no, there was no way that it could get into the 27-book New Testament canon because it wasn't apostolic. There was a high level of scrutiny and intentionality into discerning was this book inspired by God? Was it authoritative? In fact, when we, we look at kind of the early church fathers, there's this historian named Eusebius who he wrote in the, the 300s. And it's already then that we see that this was already something that was widely believed, widely trusted, that there was a 27-book New Testament canon that was closed, could not be added to anymore. And the early church, this is a really cool fact, quoted, the, the early church fathers quoted the New Testament so frequently in their writings, that if we actually lost all of the original manuscripts, if we lost every single one of the original manuscripts we have, we could still recreate them in the original language, just surely based on how they, they quoted all of the New Testament. Like, there may be a few verses. I've, I've heard 11. I didn't do the hard work of figuring that out. But very, very close to basically being able to recreate the whole New Testament. And the thing is, is that the New Testament was circulated. Like the letters that Paul wrote, they went around to other churches. Paul actually, we're going to look at this. You could throw it up on the screen. It's, it's probably not quite in perfect order, but um, Colossians uh, verse 4.16. It's probably got a 16 on it or something like that. Nope. 
Yeah, I just, I didn't give Cal the best. It's not her fault. This is, what, this is what's going on. We'll just forget it. It's my fault. Um, it's there? Okay, sweet. And when this letter has been read among you, this is what Paul's saying to the Colossians, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So he's like, I know I'm writing to the church at Colossae, but this letter, it actually needs to go to the other churches because it's authoritative. It is scripture. And the thing is, is when we talk about this, some people's issue is just like, well, why didn't the church or why didn't somebody say like this, this is officially the New Testament canon at an earlier date. But some of what I think you need to think about is if you were a Christian in this day, when the, the New Testament was written and already recognized as the authoritative 27 book collection, you were actually hiding. You were, you were kind of just like living life on the DL a little bit. Like you didn't go to salt company conferences and talk about Paul's writings. You, you were actually being a little bit more careful. And there was also no cars, internet, phones. Like you, you had to be a little bit more careful. And despite all of that, church history clearly shows us that way before any sort of official recognition, there was this functional 27-book New Testament collection. And the criteria was, is this book, is this gospel, is this letter apostolic? Was it written by one of the apostles? Or was it written by someone who was actually really close to them and got their information from them? I want to spend some time kind of before we get to the end, talking about some compelling reasons why I think you can trust the Bible just based on like, what the Bible says, its testimony about itself. Because if I'm saying, this is, this is the authority, this is God's revelation, and I use something else to make my argument, I'm kind of contradicting myself. Is that fair? Like if I use something else to go, look at this, this is more important, so I'm going to use this. Okay. We're going to talk real quick about a few different texts. Isaiah 53 is this prophecy that was written 700 years or so before Jesus came. And it says this in verse 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Isn't that amazing? This is 700 years before Jesus came. And Isaiah, speaking from God, this man who, who was a prophet, his writing carried along by the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, there is going to be this man. In fact, earlier in Isaiah, he, he talks about the birth of Jesus. He says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And he goes on to say that his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's talking about Jesus. And if you flip into the New Testament, you see the authors going, yep, this is Jesus, he's come. Or if we look at Psalm 22, this is even earlier. So if you're like 700 years, not enough for me. Psalm 22 
It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? What does that sound like to you? It's Jesus hanging on the cross. He's quoting Psalm 22. Verse 5 says, or sorry, verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Sounds like the scoffers wagging their heads at Jesus. If you turn to Mark's gospel, you see him saying, this is what Jesus said hanging on the cross. This is what the crowd was doing. This is what the people were doing. And purely, just from a historical standpoint, it's really hard to deny that Jesus was a real man, that he walked on the earth and that he was crucified. Charles Spurgeon said, you don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. Like, think about that. If you had a pet lion for a minute, like if you had a pet lion and a lion did something and it was like the other neighborhood animals were coming to fight with the lion, you just wouldn't get in the way. You would let the lion do its thing. That's what you can do with the Bible. There are prophecies that are clearly pointing to Jesus, fulfilled in Jesus, written a thousand years earlier, and these reliable historical New Testament documents are saying, that was him. He's completed this work. Peter, in, in 2 Peter 3.16 he acknowledges something that's really cool. Go ahead and go to 2 Peter 3.16. It's that other 3.16 thing. I know, I'm the worst. Um, yeah, I should have done this better. Not that one. <laughs> okay, here we go. Woo! He speaks about these things in all his letters. He's talking about Paul. This is Peter writing about Paul. He says, he speaks about all these things in all his letters. There are some things hard to understand in them. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they also do the rest of the scriptures. This is interesting, right? Like, this is, this is Peter saying Paul's letters are scripture. This is the Bible saying the New Testament is scripture. Peter wasn't just writing some random letter. He knew he was writing scripture too. And we've talked about this already. The Colossians verse 16. I know I picked too many 16s. But Paul, he was aware of what he was writing too because he knew his letters needed to be circulated. And let's stop and think about the Apostle Paul for a minute. Paul was a dude who was going around persecuting Christians. Like his, his life was centered around just seeing to it that Christianity just would stop. That Christians would be killed. And yet he becomes the man who writes much of the New Testament. Like he meets Jesus on the road and he has this encounter with Jesus that's undeniable for him. And he, he just completely changes his course. This is the same guy who in 1 Corinthians 15 writes this extremely clear gospel text where he says, like, the gospel is of first importance. 
And he goes on to say that there were over 500 witnesses to the risen Jesus. And if you think about this, in order to write something like that, and if it was false, that would be pretty foolish because it would be very obvious that this was false if you said, there are 500 witnesses. And you go, okay, Paul, well, where are your witnesses? And you've got none, but he could back it up. Like he wasn't afraid to say, there are people you can go talk to. This wasn't just some crazy hallucination, but this, this happened. Jesus rose again from the dead in bodily form. And again, what Paul says to Timothy is that the scripture is breathed out by God. This is kind of one of the central texts, this text where he says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof where we get our kind of belief that the scripture is perfect, that it cannot err, that's inerrant, infallible. Like the words of human authors were the very words of God. That these are the words that God wanted them to use. This is God himself speaking to us, displaying to us his character. And the miraculous thing is God's provided not just his word and the ability for us to read it and interact with it and know him, but also the means to understand it. Because it's one thing to just kind of read the Bible. It's another thing to understand the Bible and have insight into it. Like Peter's saying like, man, Paul's writings, they're kind of hard to understand some of them. But God has actually equipped us and given us, if you're in Christ, the very thing you need to understand the Bible. And that's the, the work that the Holy Spirit does, the illuminating work of the Scripture. As you read the Bible with just this prayerful attitude of wanting more of God and asking Him to show you Himself. And so when we think about the Scriptures, right, we're looking at it going, these are a collection of historical Documents. They're reliable. They're trustworthy because they were written by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Like, that's what's really incredible, right? We're not saying, like, people wrote about it, removed from Jesus actually living, dying, and raising to new life and ascending into heaven. They were written by the very people that claimed to witness it, said there was other witnesses, you could go talk to them, and nobody could actually, like, stop this thing from spreading. And so, this is kind of how we as, as Christians can put it. We can say that the authority that we have from God and our trust in the Bible can be certain. We can know that these are the very words of God because of how it was transmitted to us. And we need to say that we can actually have the Bible above us in terms of authority, above us from any other institution or anything like that. This is, this is what's kind of different about those two different questions. Like, is the Bible kind of a collection of authoritative writings or is it something different? But what the church does, what the church should do according to the scriptures is submit to the Bible, not actually put itself above it. Like, we shouldn't put ourselves above the Bible and say, like, this is what I kind of want to leave out, and this is what I'd prefer just wasn't there, and I'm not going to let that speak into my life. But let me ask you, does, does God's word have a higher place of authority than what you think is right? Like when it comes to making major life decisions, or maybe, maybe like something in your life that you, you just kind of know God actually isn't pleased with, is this something that you're going to just pretend isn't there or is this something you're going to let the Bible challenge you on? 
Like, do you come to the Bible for correction and for reproof? Or do you just kind of prefer to disregard things that God says, take some of it, take Jesus as Savior but not Lord? Like, as we think about kind of the next bit of this series, as we tackle other tough questions, like this is actually going to be the book. This is going to be the authority. Because if we are just up here saying, this is my opinion and this is, this is what I think the answer to this question is, you shouldn't listen to me. It would be foolish to do such a thing. But because God has provided the Holy Spirit to help you interpret the Bible, to help you live and walk in truth and to understand his word, you have an opportunity to do something far more amazing than just actually know a lot of stuff about the Bible, but you actually get an invitation to know God himself in a deep way, in a meaningful way. You get to know the God who created you and who loves you and who actually himself put on flesh the incarnate word Jesus himself and dwelt among you. So this actually means the best thing that you could do tonight is accept Jesus, is turn to him, put your faith in him, even if it's like the littlest amount of faith. Even if you feel like you have all of these questions, if you think that Jesus actually came and lived a sinless life, died on the cross and rose again from the dead, you should put your faith in him and receive the Holy Spirit to help you understand the Bible and to, to know God in this personal way. All you have to do is turn from the ways you've been living in rejecting Jesus as your Savior, in, in living in this kind of just way of, of sin, wanting what you want, in this way of jealousy and anger. The Bible talks about actually just our innate kind of sinful nature that we need rescued out of, and Jesus has come. He's inviting you into a relationship with him. You can trust the Bible because Jesus is trustworthy. He came. He was willing to suffer in your place. People, many, many people saw him appear again, risen from the dead. The, the thing is, guys, it's okay to come and put your faith in Jesus and still have questions, even have doubts. The just thing that I was thinking of this week preparing for this is actually the the words that Jesus says right before he ascends into heaven in Matthew 28. This is the great commission, but right before he kind of commissions his disciples, this is what's going on. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. These are, these are the guys that have been with Jesus. They've, they've known what happened. And they're worshiping him and some doubted. How did Matthew know that some doubted? Did the Holy Spirit inspire him to write this and tell him to write this? Yes. But is it also possible that these people who were worshiping Jesus did so in this close community where they were authentic about their struggles and doubts? to where he could write this sometime later and say, some of my friends, they were there worshiping Jesus with me and they had doubts. 
Like it's, it is okay to still have questions and doubts and just put the faith that you've got in Jesus because you know that he is the one that's risen from the dead. Like, guys, I'm, I'm no different from somebody that's still struggling and still has doubts, but I've been saved by Jesus. Like, he's opened my eyes to see him as, as Lord, and yet, like, my struggle is delighting sometimes in his word when I, when I just want to do other things, when I think that, like, I can just get to it later. And then I think about how there are people that have come to know and love Jesus just like me on the other side of the world that don't even have the whole Bible translated into their language, who just desperately want to know Jesus more, and I'm, I'm just rejecting him speaking to me. Like, there are people smuggling the Bible across borders. Like, why, why would a country ban a book? Like, could it be because it's actually powerful and divine? There are people that are longing to just have their own copy of the Bible, to not worry about cruising around with their Bible in their hand. And yet, more amazing than God speaking to us through his word, he has spoken to us through his son. He's come, he's lived, and he's died, and he's risen for you, for you to be right with him, to, to have true life, to experience the fullness of joy, to have a relationship with him, to live forever with him, and for him to say who you are, that you belong to him. Like, if you don't know Jesus, what you are looking for is something that can satisfy you. You're looking for something in life that you can attain, that you can earn, that you can get a relationship, a job, a car, you're going to get it and it's just not going to actually be what you're looking for. You probably already figured that out with something in your life and I'm telling you it's going to prove true again. It's not going to fulfill you. Only Jesus, the eternal Son of God, can give you the joy and longing of your soul that you're looking for. The Bible actually commands us to, to sing. It commands us to sing to God. Like in a congregation, it commands us to sing to God as a people that are gathered because God deserves worship for who he is and what he's done. And it's kind of crazy to think about God just like commanding people to sing. But it's what he deserves. It's what he deserves for being the eternal God of the universe, being powerful and holy and awesome. And it's actually the best response for us. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and I'm, I'm inviting you, even if, if you're not a Christian, to sing, to worship Jesus, to maybe get on your knees and pray to him and meet him. I'd love to, to talk to you afterwards if you have questions about, about the Bible. Grab another staff member if you want. We, we, want to, we want to actually talk to you about these tough questions and not just talk at you. So let me pray, and we're going to worship.